This episode is brought to you by Canela Bistro and Wine Bar, serving Spanish plates and over 70 wines from Spain in the heart of San Francisco. Visit us socially at CanelaSF and CanelaSF.com. You're listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind with Matt Schuster. We're getting inside the brilliant and delicious minds of remarkable culinary individuals. We're telling stories, cutting up, and breaking it down. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm here with my friend, restaurateur, Andrea Sundell. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for, for joining me. So today we're talking about Priya Krishna. Very exciting. Very exciting indeed. Mm-hmm. Priya just wrote a cookbook and it really centers around the fact that her mom was making food for their household in Dallas, Texas with ingredients that she could find readily available in Texas. And a lot of fusions came out of that. Mm-hmm. And so... You are fused into a household of Vikings. Yes, exactly. So I think you can identify with that a little bit. So what do you think about that, being in a fused household? It is really interesting how my palate and my husband's palate and the kids' palate kind of all intertwine. Robert's really famous for making his Swedish pancakes when the kids have sleepovers. And I always have mine with maple syrup because I grew up here stateside and that's the flavor profile for me, but a very traditional way to eat Swedish pancakes is with berries and whipped cream. And one of my other sons loves to put peanut butter on it as well. So my husband, Robert Sundell, uh, was born and raised in Stockholm, Sweden, and he is a chef and, um, and, and an excellent chef. I've, I've eaten his food several times at your restaurant play in San Francisco and it's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very proud of him. He's lovely. So my kids have grown up with this duality of, you know, being an American and having the Swedish father and they've been introduced to certain flavor profiles at a young age. It's really entertaining because two of my children love bread butter, cheese with a callous caviar. That's awesome. I won't even make it in the morning. I can't stand the smell. And the other two (laughs) want nothing to do with it either. And they'll take their regular peanut butter and jelly. And the two that like the caviar end up actually hating the peanut butter, which is so American. Peanut butter is strictly American. Strictly American. Yeah. 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 One of our first dates in Sweden, when I came to visit him, we had this idea to each make something that's very, very traditional from our own country. And he made the caviar butter and toast, and I made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That's awesome. And we each took one bite of the other item and then traded because we both hated it. I love it. I love that. That's awesome. (laughs) Where where do you get the caviar now? So the Nordic house, it's Mm -hmm. a product called Kales caviar. Mm -hmm. So it's traditional. It's traditional. It's not expensive caviar. Like Mm -hmm. most people think it comes in what looks like a metal toothpaste tube. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you just, it's a daily staple. Would you ever substitute out a different kind of caviar? No, not, it's not for me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't mind it in small doses, but, yeah. Like a daily, it's strong. a daily spread. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you this all the time. I don't know how you do it. Two restaurants and four children. Yeah. That's we're busy. a lot. We're a busy crew. Uh, uh, yeah. You are a busy crew. Uh-huh. So Priya Krishna, she's an American Indian food writer, a regular contributor to several publications, including the New York Times, Bon Appetit, and the New Yorker. She's the author of the cookbook Indianish. 
And she's also worked for Lucky Peach, which we talk about in the interview. Great. Well, thank you for hanging out with me yeah. and, and, and talking Priya Krishna. If you want to shout out to uh, Andrea, you can shout out to her on Instagram at, at Andrea Sundell. The restaurants are Play Restaurant, but that is spelled P-L-A-J. And Stockholm Restaurant, and that is in Petaluma, which we are sitting here now in yes. sunny Petaluma. Mm-hmm. And we're going to listen to some Priya Krishna. You ready? Can't wait. Yes. All right, let's do it. All right, welcome back. I'm here with Priya Krishna. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for coming in and, and doing the, the interview. So we're just going to jump right in. So sure. we talked a little bit before about who cooked growing up. So, so yeah. tell me about that. So my mom did pretty much all of the cooking and she was doing all of this while working a full-time job as a software programmer. Wow. Oh my goodness. So she would come home from work at six and there was kind of the expectation from me and my sister who were always like, we'd come back from like soccer practice or field hockey practice, we'd be starving. So dinner would have to be on the table by 6.30. So she and, had 30 and this minutes. Is in Texas? In Texas. Where, where in Texas? Dallas. Oh, right. So I grew up in Fort Worth, so oh, very close. Oh, cool. Nice. But a world, a world a wor- apart. Yeah, totally a world apart, but yeah. not super far from one another. Right, we right, right, right. Obviously. But yeah, she'd come home and she'd have to put dinner on the table in 30 minutes. And I don't think I appreciated how phenomenal it was that my mom was so committed to having a fresh home-cooked meal every Mm. night not doing leftovers not doing takeout but like cooking fresh food that was like nutritious and delicious but as a kid i had zero appreciation as kids often do (laughs) and and if you didn't like what was on the table was it was there other options there were no other options (laughs) that was it same in my house yeah and we couldn't eat dessert unless we finished our food my mom like had all the tricks in the book she did the thing where she would she would take out like our family camera and if i didn't finish my food she would like threaten to take pictures and send them to all of my friends that's awesome That's awesome. At what age did you realize that she was bluffing? I never, I honestly, like, I, (laughs) I feel like she instilled that fear in me at an early age. I never didn't finish my dinner because I was just terrified. That's awesome. I love that. That's a good trick, mom. Congrats. (laughs) And then, so I love asking this to to people who grew up in the, or who are now in the food world. Yeah. What was in your lunchbox? My mom wanted to pack me dal chowl for lunch that's what she packed herself for lunch Uh we even had this tupperware that was specifically built for packing dal chowl Mm -hmm. but i saw the way the kids would make fun of like the few other brown kids whenever they brought indian food for lunch and so i begged my mom to just let me bring a peanut butter and jelly sandwich so for 11 years i had a peanut butter jelly sandwich a yogurt a fruit and like a granola bar and my mom begrudgingly packed that for mm. lunch every day, even though she just wanted to pack me dal chowl because I guess she felt some sense of guilt that I was embarrassed of our food and just wanted me to fit in in yeah. school. It's well, every, every kid wants to fit in. Yeah. You know, I, I, I remember, you know, when my lunches were, were a little non-typical that you're aware of it. You really yeah. are. So would you do the same with a kid now? That's a good question. I feel... Or I'd like to think, I see all of my nieces and nephews, and I think that this generation has evolved a little bit. Mm, I think mm -hmm. that this generation is a bit more accepting. Like, I see my nieces and nephews really embrace their Indian heritage at a really young age, and they're Mm. really excited about it, and they love Indian food, and they're excited to bring it in their lunchboxes. Are they in Texas? 
No, they're kind of spread out all got over it, Massachusetts, it, California. You think it's regional? New York. No, I don't think so. I think it's like just the time. Yeah, I think yeah. it's just That's the great, time though. that we're in. I like to think that I think that my mom, a part of the reason she packed peanut butter and jelly sandwiches is because she just couldn't understand what I was going through because she didn't grow up here. Mm. So I'd like to think that if my kids ask me to pack them a PB&J, I will say no and be like, listen, I've been exactly where mm-hmm, you were. Mm-hmm. And like, let's talk about this. <laughs> Do you think maybe she was going through some of the same things at her job? You know? Yeah. Oh, she she certainly was. I mean, and it wasn't so just... Maybe she, she, so maybe she did understand a little bit, yeah? I mean... Maybe, maybe but the her things she was going through in her job were a little bit different. Like, she was the only woman on mm. an all-male software programming mm-hmm. team. Mm-hmm. You know, she was an immigrant and English was her second language. Mm-hmm. So I think she understood that outsider-ness mm-hmm. a little mm-hmm. bit, but... There are also a ton of Indians who go into engineering. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like for her, it was more being a woman in the workplace. Mm. And those kinds of issues I didn't face until a lot later. Mm. But for her, I feel like she did not encounter, given the field that she went in and the sheer number of Indians that go into that field, she mm-hmm. didn't thankfully encounter as much race-based discrimination in the workplace. Mm. Mm. But you said you didn't ex- experience much other conservatism in... Texas. No, I didn't. I mean, I <laughs> I have this distinct memory of asking my mother if the majority of Americans were Jewish because <laughs> my school was predominantly Jewish. What school, was, what school is this? It's called Green Hill. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. I, you know, I was going to a bar bought mitzvah uh-huh, every weekend. Uh-huh. So That's I was hysterical. like, everyone's Jewish. <laughs> right. That's hysterical. I mean, I think what's interesting about Texas is that, as they say, like, if everyone in Texas voted, it Mm -hmm. would be a blue state. Mm. You know, I think immigrants are now far outstripping, I guess, like white people Mm. in Texas now. It's just that those people don't vote or are disenfranchised Mm -hmm. from voting. So I don't know, like I was surrounded by a lot of other first gen Mm. kids. You know, the neighborhood we were in was like right next to a predominantly Latino neighborhood. It was like presumed that everyone kind of knew a little bit of Spanish Mm. to get around because, I mean, it's kind of like living in L.A. You just everyone just kind of knows enough to get by because Mm -hmm. that population is so. Yeah. yeah. So I did not feel that conservatism at all. And I remember being so confused that George W. Bush was from Texas. Mm. I was like, this does not this does not compute. And I remember the Dixie Chicks, the band, Uh they went uh went to my high school and I remember when they said they were ashamed that they were from the same yeah, state as Bush. That. that was like this huge that watershed moment yeah, yeah, in Texas. <laughs> so it's amazing because, you know, we grew up very close yeah. to each other, like a 45-minute car ride, yep. maybe an hour, but very different experiences. However, you did say something that that I did take note of, that you didn't have barbecue until you were 21. Yeah, yeah. How, I mean, I mean, how did that happen? I mean, it's not, I know a lot of Texans who didn't have barbecue until later in life. It just wasn't, well, I could think one, the barbecue in Dallas isn't as great as perhaps as it is in other places. But I think the the predominant reason why is because I grew up vegetarian and so barbecue wasn't even something that was on our radar. You don't go for the potato salad. Well, it just wasn't even on my radar to like that barbecue was something that I should be eating. And then... I joined the food world and people had all these assumptions of me being from Texas. Like, oh my God, what's the best barbecue? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh God. Barbecue and Tex-Mex. Those yeah. are the questions. I mean, Tex-Mex, I, I know. Yeah. Tex-Mex, like, I've I've got a good handle on. But barbecue, I was like, oh God, I better, I better start eating some barbecue. <laughs> Get a frame of reference. <laughs> yeah. 
So, and now you do a lot of food writing. You just wrote a cookbook. Asking you about that earlier, you said that one thing you learned was to be your own fact checker. Did you get burned? No, I just, I have fact checked stories. Mm -hmm. And I think that every writer should fact check at some point, should just like sure. freelance fact check. I think it's a really good way to kind of learn about what the process is on the other side than when you are getting fact checked. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, like my, it was one of the best pieces of advice my editor gave me, which is mm. like, you just don't know once the copy leaves your hands, mm -hmm. like how rigorously it's going to be reviewed. And so I just always fact check. And your name's on it. Your name's on every yeah. piece. Yeah. And you just want to, especially like a lot of the times I'm writing about, I'm writing really difficult stories. I'm mm. writing about people who've never been profiled or featured before. And mm. you just kind of want to do, do mm -hmm. right by them. And I know what it's like seeing like something as silly as like a name misspelling right. or like someone get an aspect of your life wrong. And it's just, doesn't feel good on the other side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. And, it, and it makes people less prone to trust you in the future. Yeah. Mm. So, and your first job was at Lucky Peach. Yeah. How was that? Honestly, I was so excited to get that job. I had gotten it through just like a cold email mm. I sent. And I remember the job was based at the Momofuku corporate office. Mm. And I remember feeling like I had entered like the cool kids <laughs> club. Like everyone was so awesome. They had great taste in restaurants. Like I was sent it in the belly of the beast. They were, I remember mm. at that time they were figuring out how to open in DC. They were rebranding Ma Pesh, you know, they were launching, Dave Chang was like becoming this huge celebrity. And whenever he walked into the office, like you could just like feel mm. his weight in the room. Mm. And, you know, my job was really menial. I literally had like a phone and I was like the customer service hotline mm. and I would just answer it and I would, you know, help fix your subscription if there was a misspelling in the address or if you didn't mm. get an issue. But you were a part, a part of it. Yeah, just like being mm -hmm. in that room, being surrounded by people and just absorbing mm. all of that knowledge about how to run a restaurant and simultaneously learning how to run a food magazine mm. and like being able to, you know, like we'd all go out to eat. We'd mm. all, it just felt, I have like these just amazing memories of, it's particularly the early days of mm. Lucky Peach when it was just like six of us and I would sort of seamlessly float between the Momofuku team, and the Lucky Peach team. I remember one time we were all out doing karaoke as for someone's going away party. And Matt Rudolfger, the executive chef of Sambar at the time, called us and was like, we had a no show for a large format ribeye. So we have just like a ribeye dinner oh, wow. sitting in the kitchen. And it was like 1 a.m. And they're oh, like, wow. do you want to come? And so, like, all of us got in a car, and we, at 1 o'clock in the morning, just sat in Pro Sambar. Probably and, after a few drinks yeah. <laughs> of karaoke, I can assume. And had this large format ribeye. And I wow. remember thinking, like, this is fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That sounds like a very New York moment, Yeah, huh? yeah. Yeah. Wow, I love that. That's, a, that's awesome. How long did you stay there? I was there for about three years. Wow. Yeah. So you got to learn a lot of jobs. I got to learn. I started in customer service and then basically by the time I left, I was overseeing all of our marketing and press wow. and events. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's amazing. And I was like 23 years old. Ah. So it was, I was kind of faking it. Was that your first like food related job? That was my first job period. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Never like waited tables or did any of the grueling in college, I worked yeah. in restaurants. Oh, okay. So you'd been 
you had been exposed to that, at least that part, which I think yeah. is super important. I think it's really important to understand what it's like to be on a line, like what it feels like making croutons or yeah. punching French fries through a French fry maker. Like yeah. I knew that I wanted to go into food starting my junior year. And so I felt like it was important to have restaurant experience. No, that's great. I, you know, um, many people in the industry believe that everybody should work in some capacity in a restaurant yeah. at some point to get a good idea of just how it is on the other side. Yeah. So Lucky Peach ended and then what happened? I kind of made a leap. I'm generally a risk averse person and I kind of <laughs> made this insane decision to quit my full-time job to go freelance. Mm. I hadn't really written much. Like I was thankful to have people like Rachel Kong and Chris Ying who really encouraged me to write at Lucky Peach mm -hmm. and were always like big champions of me. But I realized I wanted to write full-time. I didn't see myself becoming like the business lead at Lucky mm, Peach. That mm -hmm, wasn't what mm -hmm. I wanted. That's an important in my thing life. to realize early on that you what you don't yeah. like to do. It's important. Yeah. And I wanted to feel like I was in control of my own schedule. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to like I wanted to make an impact. And so I, you know, I started just taking whatever stories would come my way. I remember I mm. did like infinite listicles for mm. Zagat. Mm. I did like a bunch of roundups for tasting table. I did like little short pieces for eater. I did any place that wanted you to write something I would write. What was the first thing that you were really, really excited to write about? It was sort of a super nerdy story about this one particular type of cheese called fromage blanc mm -hmm. and how it's become really popular among chefs, but mm -hmm. due to dairy regulations, it may be going away. Hmm. And so I interviewed all of these chefs who had like secret sources for fromage contraband, blanc and were like, yeah, like blanc. smuggling it in. It's like foie gras now. Yeah, exactly. In California at least. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that was a really fun story. I think the story that made me feel the most made me feel like a real, a real journalist though, was the first story I wrote for the New York times, which was mm. like a few months after I started freelancing. That was when I was like, okay, yeah. Cool. Wait, and tell me about that. I wrote about this Indian sweet shop, this Matai shop that I grew up visiting in Houston because mm. we had family over there. Mm -hmm. And I remember they were like, I, I was going to, I happened to be going to Houston. Like I was going to Austin. And I was like, I can take a, take a pit stop in Houston on the way. And I remember I went with my boyfriend and I drove us from Dallas to Houston. Mm. And then I reported the story. And then on the ride from Houston to Austin, I wrote the story in the passenger wow. seat of the car while he drove the car. We got to our Airbnb. I like reread the story. He gave it a read and then I submitted it. Mm. And it was just like, it was quick. It was so intense because they were like, we need this story really quick. Wow. Like, because it, it was pegged to an Indian holiday, uh. a Hindu holiday. So, yeah, that was really stressful. But I also like writing in the yeah. passenger seat of a car. I was like, wow. Yeah, this, you feel like you're, yeah. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're in it. <laughs> you're in it. That's right. That's right. What's your dream article? Do you have like a dream? Yeah, there's an article I'm really hoping to get to write this summer. My family has this kind of secret spice that's been around for a really long time. Mm -hmm. Usually someone, a family member in India will make it because it's said. Is it a blend? or It's, it's a, a blend. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's like a finishing spice. Uh -huh. It's called Adam Masala. Uh -huh. And everyone has different theories of how it got named uh -huh. and what's in it. And the last person who knew how to make it recently passed away. Mm. 
And I would like to take up the family mantle of making mm. Adam Masala and distributing it to everyone. But I also want to learn the origin story and talk about the sort of folklore hmm. to my... So it's secret from family to family. No. Well, I guess different people have written it down. It has varied slightly, mm. but it's a secret to everyone who's not in our family. Right. Yeah. So, so it's not like friends would sit around trading their recipe for that. Yeah, no, no, no. Got it, got it, got it. And like, I remember one of my friends who is Indian offered to make it. And my dad was like, she's not family. So <laughs> she can't make it. So, but there must be a base to it that everybody follows. There literally was a single person who would make it and uh -huh. they'd make a huge batch and uh -huh. they'd bottle it and they'd distribute it to all of my yeah. family members. But I mean, like from family to family... It must have a couple common ingredients, right? No, no, we're all getting the same spice. No, but I'm saying like in different families. Oh. In different families. Like there must yeah. be something that makes it, you know, at least the base of that. Like like a barbecue sauce is always different, but it generally has a few common ingredients, right? No, I think, I don't know. I don't know any other family who yeah. has like this uh. intense and this like legacy of a spice, but I think I'd be interested in looking... In like comparing it to, you know, barbecue sauces mm -hmm. or other things where people feel like a proprietary claim sure. over it. And I'm, sh I'm sure there are other Indian families who have this spice, but unlike barbecue sauce, mm -hmm. I don't think that there's common ingredients. Mm. I nice. think the common Super notion intrigued. is like just spices. Wow. Yeah. So, so that in itself already sounds like an amazing article. Yeah. Like I'm intrigued. I'm trying, I'm trying to write it this summer. I feel like people have been asking me this and I've said this response enough times that my editor, Sam Sifton, I'm like, I feel like I'm hoping that people will just like tell him you mm. need to green light this story. <laughs> mm. Mm. Green light it. Let's do it. So this is a good segue into a question I asked you earlier about issues that food professionals need to take head on. And I loved what you said about expanding the definition of American cooking. Mm -hmm. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that when you look at most glossy food magazines, their notion of American cooking is basically just Western cooking. Sure. Things that come from like things that we sort of have commonly understood to be American burgers, right. hot dogs, apple pie, apple pie, right. and even like now pizza and pasta right. is like anything sort of from European, from European countries is falls under that realm too. Right. But People don't think of Mexican food or Indian food or Vietnamese food as American food, mm. even though those communities make up a really significant portion of America. I mean, immigrant communities are the U.S. We obviously are a nation of immigrants, and mm -hmm. it just frustrates me to no end that there's still this like us versus them mentality. Right, right, right. And when a lot of publications do write about Indian food or some other kind of food, they almost teach it like a it's like a project mm -hmm, cooking and mm -hmm. it's not like seen as an everyday thing you could make on a weeknight. And I just wish that that Indian food and other cuisines were sort of allowed to be a part of that conversation about just mainstream everyday home cooking. I can't even tell you the number of times that I'm like in meetings and I'm like, you know, we need to include more Indian food. And mm -hmm. I'm told, well, we just can't call for seven spices. The best thing we can do is call for curry powder. And I have had this conversation a million times. Not every Indian food, Indian dish has seven spices. Mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. every Indian dish even has spices. Right. There's just this like 
myopic view mm-hmm. of what Indian food is. And for some reason in certain places, they're like, well, the best we can do is call for curry powder. Mm. And I just, that is just so ludicrous to me. And yeah. one of the, one of the things that I hope that my book helps to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so in, in the title really explains a lot Indian ish. Mm-hmm. So talk about the title. Yeah, I mean, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, one of the most exciting trends that happens in America is when an immigrant community comes and they have this heritage cuisine that they really miss, but they adapt it to Mm -hmm. the flavors of their new setting. And I think that is the spirit of this cookbook. It's about my mom only learned to cook once she immigrated here. Hmm. So she brought the the memories of back home, but she didn't have all of those ingredients. Hmm. So she was substituting paneer for feta. Mm. She was making pizza, but with roti, because that's what she knew. Mm -hmm. And I think that that approach is a really modern approach that speaks to what a lot of families do Mm -hmm. and how families stay connected to their roots while also assimilating to to the U.S. It was sort of how we had this foot in both worlds growing up. Yeah, and especially if she's running home to cook dinner, she maybe can't go to the place to get the one ingredient that, you know, so you Totally, she's like just, she's riffing. My mom Mm -hmm. was constantly riffing. She just is such an intuitive, amazing cook that her riffs always turned out Mm. amazing. (laughs) Mm. And when you had friends come over, what would they, how was their experience eating? It's really funny. I didn't have, usually when friends would come over, I would make my parents order pizza. (laughs) Um, Or my dad would make a big pot of spaghetti. Uh There was one friend though. I remember he came over and we were having a dinner party. His name was Henry. Mm -hmm. He lives in San Francisco now. And we served him a full Indian meal. Mm. And he just like, he was really picky eater and he lapped it up. He was like, this is amazing. Like, I can't believe... We've just been having pizza or going right. out every right. night that I've been coming to and your place. And your, your parents were like, see, what did I tell you? Yeah. Right. And then, you know, slowly but surely, I'd have friends come over and I would let my mom cook her food. Mm. And so I had, you know, there this group of high school friends who, you know, when I see them now, like they remember my mom's food. Mm. And they were sort of the earliest inklings of me thinking like, oh, okay, like maybe this is Mm-hmm. Maybe it's okay to share this food mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with my friends. It's amazing. Yeah. What's your favorite recipe in the book? Or no, let me, let me say that. What's your one of your favorite recipes in the book? I hate your favorite because that like puts such like an absolute on things. Yeah. You know? I mean, one of the ones that I think is just so beloved in our family is the dahi toast, which mm-hmm. are these almost like an Indianish grilled cheese sandwich. It's like two pieces of sourdough bread, and you stuff it with yogurt mixed with cilantro and onions. Mm and chilies and then you griddle it on both sides and then you top it with curry leaves and mustard seeds tempered mm. and oil oh it's no, known as a chunk and just there's something the the yogurt like putting yogurt in a sandwich feels so counterintuitive but somehow it just like almost ricotta-fies a little bit and like gets flavored with Mm. the onions and the chilies. And then you get the crunch of the bread plus the crunch of those curry leaves on top and Mm. this earthiness. And then my dad and I always eat it with ketchup mixed with cilantro chutney. That's awesome. And it just, people are always so skeptical. And then when they have the ketchup, you can't go back. (laughs) It's so good. That sounds delicious. Yeah. Okay, so so I was asking you about 
other cuisines that are inspiring you? Mm-hmm. I love Vietnamese food. Mm. I just, I think that, especially in New York, we are in this, like suddenly Vietnamese food is sort of getting its due. And you have authors like Andrea Nguyen, who's writing these amazing Vietnamese cookbooks and showing in the same way that I'm trying to show how Indian food is everyday food, that Vietnamese food can be mm-hmm. everyday food. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's like a bright, beautiful, herbaceous cuisine and just, and really not that hard. Like it's a lot Mm. of uncooked components where Mm -hmm. you're just kind of like assembling and creating Mm -hmm. this like wonderful platter of herbs and noodles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, that's like the cuisine that I feel like I have been craving on a regular basis. Mm. Mm. Here in San Francisco, I love Turtle Tower. Have you been? Mm -mm. Oh God! Where is that? It's uh, there's a few locations and in their San pho in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Their pho is just unbelievable. I crave that pho. Mm, mm. Yeah, I feel <laughs> like the the Vietnamese joint near us is always packed. Yeah, just like literally, like lunch and dinner is just yeah. full all the time. Yeah. People love it. Yeah, it's fun to take also sometimes just a couple of those flavors and mm-hmm. put them into something unintended right and yeah. you get you get like a i don't know fusion has become such a, a weird word but in my head at least i think especially as we get as the world gets smaller and smaller everything gets more fusion you yeah know? and i think like where fusion excites me is when there is a story behind mm-hmm. that fusion mm-hmm. when it's not just like a haphazard combining of two cuisines but when when it represents like an evolution of someone's mm-hmm. cooking that's when I appreciate it the most. Mm. And do you think that there'll be a time when grocery stores will look just completely different than they do now? Like the mainstream grocery stores? I really, really hope so. <laughs> there I, won't be that half aisle international food, old and dusty wasabi next to exactly. jarred peanut sauce yeah. that have both been there for like three years. and. Yeah, I think grocery stores, like the change starts with grocery stores. Like when Mm -hmm. grocery stores change, I think food publications will feel comfortable to change. Mm. Like grocery stores stock turmeric and now turmeric is a really commonly called for ingredient Mm. in food publications. But yeah. They don't want to like scare people, right? I mean, one thing, a place that is so exciting is going to the Mm H-E-B in San Antonio, Texas. Right, right. The uh, Central Market. No, no, the H-E-B in San Antonio where... There are so many members of the Hispanic population that shop there that there is no ethnic aisle. Mm. It's literally just Mm-mm-mm-mm. you can get like there's a there's an entire aisle dedicated to salsa. That's awesome. But that's just because there's so much salsa. That's like awesome. the tortillas are right there. Yeah. Like everything. It's just I mean, I just walked in there and I felt like it was a revelation. Right. It was like, you know, look around. The majority of the people shopping here right. are Latino. Right. So obviously, like, it's not like the tortillas are hidden away in an ethnic section. No, right. those are right front and center, as are, like, all of the vegetables that are used in those cuisines and all of the different herbs and ingredients. And it was just so exciting to me. And I'm like, I can't wait till every grocery store looks like this H-E-B. Go to any country and visit the grocery store. That mm-hmm. tells you a lot about the culture. Yeah. So we go to Spain a lot because we have a Spanish restaurant and yeah. that's one of my favorite things to do is just walk the aisles in a grocery store yeah. and, and not even like necessarily like a super, it doesn't have to be like a super gourmet grocery store. It's just fascinates me. Like I remember the first time I went to Spain, there was one whole aisle for olive oil. Yeah. Literally like an entire, and not like every kind of oil. I mean, I th- I th- there was like one vegetable oil, but it was literally like a hundred different yeah. olive oils. 
And I was, it was just blown away. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it's great for getting out of that narrow minded point of view that your aisle should look a certain way totally. in your grocery store. Totally. Right? I agree wholeheartedly. Start like a, a grocery stores for change movement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how else can food professionals be a voice of change? Do you think? Hiring people of color and mm. promoting people of color. Mm. I think that I see people of color at food magazines, but not at the top of the masthead. Mm. They're not the decision makers. I think it is just such an obvious way to make food media and home cooking more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Hiring people from different backgrounds. I mean, and not just different races, people who come from different parts of the country, different parts of the world, people of different orientations, people not all people who grew up in upper middle class mm-hmm. environments, which is mm-hmm. often the case in food media because it requires a certain amount of privilege to move to New York and sure. live off of a, you know, $37,000 oh, yeah. a year salary. There's, um, there's some kind of like a gourmet shame too. If you don't know, you know, what a Buddha's hand is, it's like, maybe right. you didn't grow up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it doesn't mean you don't want to learn about it. Totally. But- and I just, you kind of see that, that sort of like white, privilege mentality mm, mm. in a lot of magazines and like I'm not gonna sh- like I grew up extremely privileged mm. and like had I not had my book advance from my very first book I would not have been able to survive on my starting mm, salary mm, at mm, Lucky Peach mm. like not at all yeah but yeah I mean I think I think we just need to be better at at opening doors for people and giving people opportunities and examining the fact that when we're reaching into our networks for jobs and for, you know, for, for assigning people things that like oftentimes are, this is how food media stays so homogenous is because the networks are pe- other people like you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whenever, at least whenever I'm asked to do something, I try to make sure that like the people I'm recommending for something sort of represent a really mm. broad subset of members of the food media community. And I think we're getting better but there's a lot of work mm. that needs to be done i don't know i'm I'm always interested in those stories i think the stories that interest me most are stories where it's talking about a broader social political economic issue but food is is the way in mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. those are the best food food's stories. always the gateway somebody yeah. you know told me once you know food is how other people learn about another culture for the first time yeah i feel like that's why i love writing about what i do i feel like a lot of people I talk to are like, yeah, I, you know, started as a film critic and I ended up writing about food. Mm. For me, like food was always what I wanted to write about. Mm. I didn't want to write about anything else. I wanted to write about food because of that specific power that food has. Did your family support you or were they mm. like, you know, hey, you need to do something else? Yeah, no, my, my parents ah. were, they wanted me to go into consulting, finance, right. like anything but food writing. <laughs> have they accepted it now, now that you have I a- mean, I mean, yeah, I wrote a book about <laughs> them, so- <laughs> Yeah, they've accepted it now. I think they just needed to see me figure things out and succeed. And whatever succeed even means, like, I guess writing a book about them is pretty, pretty cool. Their, their definition but, of, of, yeah, of, of succeed. Yeah, and they sure. needed to yeah, see me be able to make a living off of this. And then they were like, okay, yeah, this is something she can do. I think they just, they just didn't know. It was such a question mark for them. Mm-hmm. They, none of their friends were journalists. Mm-hmm. They grew up in India where it's like, you know, you become a doctor or mm-hmm. you go into engineering. <laughs> there mm-hmm. aren't many options. So I think now they're really excited. Now they, now they have like, 
something they can say when their friends ask, like, what does your daughter do? Right. They can be right. like, she writes for these publications right. that you've heard of. Right. And she has a book about us. Right. That's, <laughs> that is, I'm sure, a very proud moment for them. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, of course. So I love asking people what makes you mad because I think it's it's such a fun question. Maybe fun is the wrong word, but it's such a it's such a, a specific question. And we were talking about appropriating other cultures. Tell me about taking on other cultures. I guess I have no problem with someone deciding to cook a cuisine that's not their own. I mean, I do it all the time. I just think that what frustrates me is when they treat something like turmeric or kitchardy as a brand new discovery mm. and completely ignore the heritage of mm. that ingredient mm -hmm. and pretend like they're the ones bringing it to the forefront mm. for the very first time. I think that really frustrates me. It frustrates me to no end when I'm banging a drum about dal, let's mm -hmm. say, and then someone releases a recipe that looks a lot like a dal and mm -hmm. they're a white person. And mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I guess now that a white person is releasing this recipe and marketing it as like a Instagram ready, like right. wellness dish, then right. all of a sudden right. it's popular. <laughs> I think that really frustrates me. And if I'm being honest, like that you eat from a, from a, a yoga ball, right? Like yeah. you, as you balance yourself yeah. on like a yeah. yoga ball. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the reason fundamentally that it bothers me is just being a person who is made fun of as mm, a kid for sure. that food and sure. the idea that the types of people who made fun of me are now turning it into a, sure. a wellness trend is like really infuriating. It feels unfair. It feels yeah. unjust in a way. So I suppose I, I just, I just wish people were better at doing their homework and giving mm. credit where credit mm. is due. Mm. And from talking with other food writers, it happens all the time. All the you know? time. And not only that, but in the in the photo shoots too. The photo shoots get kind of yeah. turned weird, right? When you when you have other cultures' foods come in. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even like <laughs> things like, I don't know, having <laughs> I think we were doing a photo shoot for the book and we had like cumin seeds on the table. Someone who was commenting on it was like, oh, can we add more of those sesame seeds? And I'm like, oh, those are not sesame seeds. <laughs> Slap me in the face. Why don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay. So now it's time for a little game, if that's okay. Sure. It's not a hard game. <laughs> it's the game of threes. So, and these can be real or made up. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Just three. Three is the magic number. Okay. So three Failed cookbook titles. This can be yeah. real or imagined. Yeah. I mean, I had really bad titles for this. I remember I had one that was like, cool mom. <laughs> one was like. Just cool mom. Yeah. One that was like, the Krishnas. And because awesome. I didn't want Indian in the title at first. And then there was another one that was like, Priya cooks, I don't know, Priya <laughs> cooks food or something. You know, something super lame like that. Yeah. There were a lot of terrible rejected titles that eventually became Indianish. <laughs> well, Indianish is perfect. So, and it's all a, it's all a journey, right? Yeah. Okay. So, three article topics that always turn into heated discussion. Like you know if you're going to write it that it's going to be a thing. Like people are going to are, are going to get in heated conversations about it. Let's see. I mean, yeah, whenever I write about appropriation mm. of Indian ingredients, mm -hmm. I feel like people have a lot of feelings. I wrote about yogurt and surprisingly people have a lot of strong feelings mm. about yogurt. So, what were some of the reactions to yogurt? You know, just people who have certain beliefs on like 
how yogurt should be made and mm. store-bought versus homemade. Mm. And there's just like such a non-dairy versus dairy yogurt. Mm. There's just like a big, there's a big yogurt community. Yogurt controversy. Yeah. a lot. Yeah. A lot. And as I've learned writing for Bon Appetit, writing about green bell peppers, just really include. Yeah. Like I've published a dish with green bell peppers. People at Bon Appetit hate green bell peppers. And then it just sort of, a lot of people came out of the woodwork being like, I love the green bell pepper. Yeah. In like, Spanish cooking, they use green yes, bell peppers. A lot of way more a lot than of people from from Spain were getting, mm-hmm. and a lot of people from like the Caribbean islands were like, "We mm. love green bell peppers." Like, why is that? <laughs> well, the I mean, the, the pepper is just a little bit different in Spain. It's a little more thin skin, but it's not like it's so completely different, right? So, why do you think some people get so upset, or why do you think Americans in general get upset with green bell peppers? I have no idea. I don't think it's Americans. Part of me thinks mm. it's like the Bon Appetit test kitchen, and in That's this funny. video, I was like. Yeah, they all hate green bell peppers, and they all were so adamant that they weren't going to like my dish because they hated green bell peppers. Uh And I was so touched by how many people came to my defense on the internet being like, in my cuisine, we love green bell peppers. I love that. I love that. That was a good three. Okay, three fears. I have a huge fear of someone walking in on me in the bathroom. That's like a just (laughs) enormous, enormous fear. Anywhere. That's probably my biggest fear. Even, Even if you're alone. Yeah, like I had a fear, like this actually happened to me. I In Montessori school, our bathroom opened up to the whole classroom and I got walked uh, in on and I was like reading a book while I was in the bathroom. And so the well, entire class saw me and- You need bathroom therapy. That's like my, that's yeah. my biggest, my biggest fear. Camping. I mean, if you've ever gone camping, at some point you have to go to the bathroom outside. Yeah, but so. that's different. This is like being walked, like I'm okay with like, you know, whatever, peeing in front of your friends. Right. But like being walked in on in the Got bathroom, it. like when you're at a restaurant, you forget to do the right, latch. Right, and right, Which I'm opens sure you never door. do. Yeah, I always yeah. double check. Right. Sometimes I will just like, if it isn't working, I'll just like reach from the toilet and just like hold <laughs> the latch together. Like this is <laughs> a huge fear of mine. <laughs> I just, it's my private Understood. time. Yeah. <laughs> Take note. Yeah. I have a fear of turning something in and knowing it's not my best, I guess. Mm. Like, I don't know. And a fear of being late. I hate being late. Mm. I'm always the person who's on time or mm. early. Mm. Those are, yeah, those are three fears. But the mm. walking in on the bathroom thing, that is like, that's big. It's mm. a big one for me. My goodness. I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm scared of that. Three ingredients that always surprise you in a good way or a bad way. I guess I used to think that I hated sardines and I've had Mm. them more and more and like really wonderful preparations that have changed my mind about them. So I feel like every time I eat them, I'm surprised at how much I like that sardine taste Mm. that I think I've just developed a taste for. The same thing with oysters. I never used to like oysters and I'm always surprised. I'm surprised by how much I like oysters when I have them. Mm. (laughs) And then the other one is tomato paste. I was like really Mm. late on the tomato paste game. But I think it's just it's fantastic. Qu- I feel like it's yeah. a quantity thing. Yeah, know? I know a lot of it recipes call for like a huge a whole tube of tomato mm-hmm, paste, but mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I'm always surprised and delighted mm-hmm. by it. Mm-hmm. But I just don't sell celery in a soup, I can't can't do it. Surprises celery? me in a bad way. Celery in soup. Celery in soup. Is it a texture or a flavor? It's or texture, both? it's flavor. It huh. just reminds me of like the worst fast casual chains. Uh, got it. Soups. Got it. Got it. Got it. Like, like a minestrone, minestrone soup from like oh, corner bakery. Oh. Minestrone soup is like the last soup on my list. Unless you're in 
grandma's kitchen in Italy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully there'll be more Indianish soups on menus. I hope know? so. And I hope it's not just like curried blah, blah, blah yeah, soup. Right. Totally. I want to ban the word curried <laughs> from things. <laughs> I hate it. You could have called your book the anti-curry cookbook. Yeah. No, I like definitely. I feel like the book is a real like rage against the word curry. <laughs> There's like a whole section of the book about like why you will not find curry in this book. So tell me why you hate the word curry. Curry is like this empty word that was used by the British and codified by them to basically reduce Indian food mm. to a monolith and mm, completely mm, mm. ignore the diversity and nuance in the mm. cuisine. So I hate that word because it has, you know, allowed people to just think of Indian food as a single entity and not as multiple states, each with a breadth of cuisine that's totally distinct from one another. It was reduced to a, this idea of like a sauce with like a gravy with meat swimming in it. That's what people think of. A lot of people think of when they think of Indian cuisine and it's that's known as a curry and it just drives me nuts. All of those dishes have unique names. Why can't we call those dishes by their names? Can you imagine if instead of calling like the different pastas by like spaghetti or tortellini or ravioli, we were just calling it some word that isn't even used in Italy. Noodles. No, I mean, yeah, yeah. Right? We were calling just like everything's it like noodles. tomato noodles, right. like cheese filled noodles. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's so sad. Yeah. It is kind of, it is kind of washed, washed out, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think that there'll be a time when that changes? I really hope so. I mean, I feel like there are so many awesome like South Asians who are doing amazing things mm. and helping to move us away from that word and show people how awesome and highly regional Indian food is. Mm. So, you know, I feel like I'm just a small, small piece of that, but I'm really, I'm just so encouraged by everything that's happening in the food world and the other awesome Indians that I get to, you know, work alongside and call mm. peers. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Priya. This was super enlightening. I love your point of view. If you want to check out Priya's social, it's at PK Gourmet, or you can check out her website, priyakrishna.me, P-R-I-Y-A-K-R-I-S-H-N-A dot N-E. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. Find us on all things social at Culinary Mindcast and on the web, canelasf.com backslash podcast. Don't forget to rate us where you found us.